Welcome to the PA Books Podcast. PA Books is a production of PCN, the Pennsylvania Cable Network. This program features interviews with authors of books on Pennsylvania people, history, sports, business, nature, and politics. We hope you enjoy this podcast. This week on PA Books, John Cromer, author of Philadelphia Battlefields. John Cromer is the author of Philadelphia Battlefields, Disruptive Campaigns and Upset Elections in a Changing City. Why did you write this book? Well, um, I've spent a lot of time uh, uh, as a volunteer in civic associations and neighborhood organizations. In addition, um, uh, during the 1980s, I was elected as a Democratic committee person um, in my ward in West Philadelphia. And it surprised me, it surprises me still, the many people that are very active with community groups and neighborhood associations and nonprofit service organizations steer clear of politics and frequently will say, you know, I just don't want to get into that. It just doesn't seem like a good thing for me to do or, you know, it seems dirty or um, there's something wrong with it. And, well, to some extent, that's true uh, sometimes. Um, but uh, the political organizations in every city, not just Philadelphia, but in every city, um, really generate the leaders of tomorrow. So it just concerned me and made me curious about why people who are otherwise concerned about the well-being of society uh, frequently don't get involved in uh, influencing how this infrastructure is working. So um, I thought one way to examine that was to look at upset elections in the city of Philadelphia, which is known uh, as a one-party town. Uh, Democrats have been in charge of Philadelphia basically since the 1950s. And so the basic understanding is a candidate endorsed by the Democratic Party um, is probably going to win um, just because there's no uh, Republican Party strength to speak of. Uh, currently, Democratic voters outnumber Republicans um, by a seven to one margin. Um, so uh, the party has considerable strength. However, every now and then, and this is not a rare thing, a candidate who has not been endorsed by the Democratic Party will win, and not just win, but win spectacularly um, against a uh, another candidate who's a, an incumbent or has been strongly supported by the party leadership. So I thought it'd be worthwhile just to look into how that happens. You know, is it like the lottery? Well, we're, you know, I was just lucky. I happened to win this year. Uh, that's not the case uh, ordinarily. Um, did somebody get paid off? Off, some political king, kingpin get paid. Um, that's really not the case either. Um, and what I found was very encouraging. Um, what these upset elections have in common is that the insurgent candidate, the challenger, found a way to communicate honestly and effectively um, with voters about issues that they cared about. And I think one uh, example in Philadelphia was uh, the uh, election for a new city controller. 
that happened in 2017, in which Rebecca Reinhardt, a woman who had a public sector background but never run for elected office before, defeated Alan Buckovitz, who had been a state, leg- a state representative for um, quite some time and then was the incumbent city controller and a ward leader. Um, nearly all the ward leaders supported him. Many of the ward leaders had no idea who she was, um, but she won spectacularly. Uh, she won in almost every area of the city. Um, and so I thought it would be interesting to look into the reasons why upset elections like that happened. And I was fortunate in having an opportunity uh, to speak uh, directly with people who had been involved in those campaigns and to find out more about their secrets and, and how these things worked. Um, as you know, in every city in Pennsylvania, uh, there's a comparable political infrastructure. Um, in home rule cities particularly, there's a mayor and a city council, and a number of the city council members are elected by district by a certain geographic area. And within those geographic areas, there are subdivisions, sometimes called precincts, sometimes called divisions, in which party elected officials who are unpaid um, work to get out the vote and to promote candidates. So although the book is about Philadelphia, it really is applicable, I think, to uh, other cities, um, whether the Democrats or the Republicans are uh, uh, the dominant party in control, to examine this neighborhood-scale political infrastructure, uh, learn how it works, and to look at opportunities to build up from the grassroots to uh, support the election of capable candidates who uh, might represent and represent a new generation of leadership. Now, you mentioned that you had been a committee person at one point. Uh, What is a committee person, and why did you decide to run for that office? Well, it's very interesting. And again, there are counterparts to this in other Philadelphia cities. Um, The city is divided up into small sections called divisions. And each division consists of roughly 1,000 registered voters, plus or minus. So as you can imagine, there are more than 1,000 divisions across the city. And also, they're very manageable. In some uh, row house neighborhoods, one division uh, consists of a few blocks that you could walk in a couple of hours. And two committee people are uh, elected from each party for each division. And those two committee people work with the party organization to get people registered to vote, to communicate with voters about upcoming elections and candidates in those elections, um, and to help get out the vote on election day. And as I said, I've been involved with neighborhood organizations, and it seemed to me that getting into the election infrastructure and learning how to uh, promote more involvement uh, in voting in elections and a more knowledgeable electorate would be a good thing. Um, And so what I found after uh, being elected committee person um, was uh, counterparts in other divisions in this ward Uh, And what really uh, surprised me was that these other committee people really represented the community very effectively in terms of age, 
level of education, uh, racial and ethnic, ethnic diversity. They were really much more representative of the community than, you know, your average neighborhood organization or nonprofit organization. Um, and many of them uh, were involved in their congregation of faith. Uh, some uh, were involved uh, with government agencies. Um, and uh, many of them were very committed to working together to uh, uh, advanced democracy, in effect. Uh, needless to say, there are a lot of other people in the political infrastructure, and this is not only true in Philadelphia, who are not that interested um, in promoting democracy and are more interested in getting out a controlled vote. In some cases, um, not encouraging people to participate in elections so that voters who will always vote for the endorsed candidate uh, will uh, um, produce the majority for a party-favored candidate. So the structure of the party organization in Philadelphia, and again, I believe this is true elsewhere in Pennsylvania, uh, is very consistent with democracy and representative government. You know, the party elects people from the grassroots. They get together and elect a, a party leadership. Um, what could be more democratic than that? And my conclusion really has been that uh, there isn't a fatal problem with the structure of the party organization. The problem was with the people who are in charge of the organization. Um, and that's not to say, you know, we should throw out everybody and elect some elite group, uh, people like me, to take control and run the place. Um, some very capable, qualified people, many of them are already working in the organization, the grassroots. Um, but the leadership really, to a considerable extent, is kind of fossilized. And you have people that have been in the same positions for decades. Decades, um, and this hasn't always been conducive to uh, the well-being of the uh, uh, voters at large. So, finding a way to change that by getting more people involved and to get more pe by getting more people to participate at the grassroots level, I think is really important going forward. Um, I think it's important to bear in mind that uh, whether you like them or not, the people who are now sitting under the dome of the state capitol in Harrisburg and the capitol in Washington, D.C., many of them uh, got their start at the grassroots level. They got elected as, you know, auditor or uh, a controller or a district council person um, and worked their way up uh, through the party structure and through uh, elections for higher office and uh, became some of the leaders of the Commonwealth or of the nation. And so to the extent that people are concerned one way or another about what's going on in Harrisburg and what's going on in D.C., regardless of what party you belong to, and I expect the voters in both parties are concerned um, for various reasons, this is really the opportunity to help advance a new generation of leadership. You know, people who are younger, um, who uh, have not bought into any particular ideology, people who care about uh, issues at the neighborhood level um, and at the city and county level, and really get them more engaged in politics and in governance. And I think that's, uh, that could be a very good thing. Now, one of the figures that you mentioned previously that you feature in the book is Rebecca Reinert. Uh, she ran for city controller in 2017. You said that that was not an ordinary year. Why? 
there was a, a reaction to the presidential election of 2016 um, on the part of voters that uh, uh, were concerned about uh, the election of Donald Trump. And uh, one group that uh, mobilized in response to this concern uh, consisted of women who decided to run for office. And uh, this uh, sort of movement took place in some areas of Pennsylvania, but also nationally, both in uh, urban and rural areas. Clearly, there are Trump supporters as well. Um, but at this particular time, the sort of uh, anti-Trump movement really gained some traction. And uh, one outcome of that uh, was the uh, results of the midterm elections, in which a significant number of women were elected to seats in Congress. To a certain extent, that was reflected in at a local level in Philadelphia and in other cities. And 2017 was the first election after the presidential election in which people who felt that, you know, I'm concerned about this, I have to do something, had an opportunity to do something, and that was to, uh, uh, to run for office at the local level. And Rebecca Reinhardt was a person who had a strong private sector background. Uh, she was not a traditional politician. Alan Bukovitz really was an outstanding state representative and a very well-qualified controller. So it's not like he was some political hack, but he was very attached to the party uh, organization. Um, and I think that uh, sort of characteristic of his was widely known. And there may have been a feeling on the part of many voters that it was time for a change. And here was a well-qualified professional person who happened to be a woman who uh, might uh, be a good person to uh, replace Alan Bukovitz um, in uh, the 2017 elections. So when a candidate like Reinhardt uh, decides to take on a candidate uh, who's endorsed by the city party organization, what is she up against? Well, uh, the DA election, um, which takes place in a, a so-called off year, in which there's no presidential election, in which the governor's office um, is not going to be on the ballot, um, is a tough uh, election to run in um, because the voter turnout is going to be much lower than it is in the presidential election or a mayoral election. Um, and that means that the controlled voters, the voters that will consistently come to the polls and consistently vote for the party-endorsed candidates, are going to uh, be a big, big factor. Um, and so what Reinhardt and her campaign organization did really was not to uh, follow the traditional path and go to ward meetings and ask the ward leaders for their support. They weren't going to support her. For the most part, They're, they uh, were well acquainted with Alan Bukovitz, who was a ward leader himself and uh, just reflexively would, would support him. Reinhardt had an interesting opportunity because uh, the other race, the top of the ballot, was the district attorney's race. And the previous district attorney, Seth Williams, had resigned in disgrace. Um, after some uh, being the subject of a criminal investigation. Um, and so there was a lot of interest in the DA's race and in finding a capable person to uh, run for district attorney. And there were half a dozen candidates, several of them very well qualified. Um, 
uh, Representative Vukovic, um supported one of the candidates who was a labor, who had an affiliation with uh, the labor units um, because I think he felt that uh, labor had supported him and so he should side with uh, the labor-endorsed candidate. That really created an opportunity for Rebecca Reinhardt because she could go to the other five DA candidates and say, Bukovic supported your opponent. And so rather than visiting these ward leadings, ward meetings, um, which would end without her being endorsed, she went to the DA candidates and said, would you put me on your sample ballot as your endorsed candidate for controller? And the sample ballots, as you probably know, are handed out by poll workers, uh, activists at the polling places um, at each election day. Um, And they show the... uh, Um, ballot and uh, show recommended candidates. So the DA candidates, um, by and large, um, weren't uh, that involved in the city control election. And so uh, most of them, I think, felt this would be fine. Um, Why not do it? And uh, the result was a lot of uh, people who are aggressively supporting DA candidates were also supporting Reinhardt. So is there a playbook for insurgent candidates, or are they just kind of figuring things out on their own? Well, what I found out uh, was that there are three uh, sort of elements to a, an upset campaign uh, that contributed to successes in the cases I looked at. One was having a clear identity as a candidate. Um, uh, It's not enough just to be a great person, to be an angel. Um, There has to be something that sets you apart um, from your competitor. And I think in the case of Reinhardt, you know, as I said, she had a a financial industry background. She had worked for the city and worked on budgeting. Um, She uh, was clearly a qualified professional. And what was as important, I think, was that she didn't have a political background. She hadn't run for office before. City controllers in the past, and this is not just true in Philadelphia, um, <clears throat> some of them have a tendency to want to call a press conference whenever they feel there's an opportunity to do so. And that was certainly the case with Bukovic, and I think it conveyed the uh, impression among many voters that this was somebody who was a little political um, and that Reinhardt would not would be more focused on getting the job done. Um, A second uh, sort of element of a successful insurgent campaign is voter education, uh, particularly in a so-called off-year election, um, giving voters an understanding of, you know, why should I care? You know, why should I care about this particular candidate um, and show up at the polls at this uh, election? Um, Philadelphia and other cities uh, that have an industrial background um, have been struggling with uh, budget issues and with funding the schools and funding city services. And so to have a candidate who is talking about being focused on those issues, being focused on the books, um, challenging the mayor and city council when she felt that uh, 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 the budget wasn't being managed in the appropriate way or where there were opportunities to innovate and improve really set her apart, and that was what was needed. And the third element um, was uh, is the party. You know, what is the Democratic Party going to do? Um, are they going to aggressively support one of the candidates, or are they going to uh, make this election a so-called open election in which the party organization doesn't endorse 
any particular candidate. Uh, the DA election in Philadelphia was an open election. Um, the party organization, the city committee, wasn't supporting any one of the candidates. They were supporting Alan Bukovitz, but the fact that the DA race was open provided an opportunity for uh, Reinhardt to uh, make alliances with the DA candidates and, in effect, be on their teams, all of them at once, uh, to produce the votes that, uh, that were needed. So that, those were common features that I found in, uh, in all of the elections. But uh, what was encouraging to me was that um, the key was communicating with voters about issues that they cared about. Again, it wasn't enough to say, I'm the reform candidate. You know, I'm a good person. Uh, you had to uh, um, have a message that really connected with voters um, with respect to issues that were concerned, of concern to them. And many voters have been and are concerned about education, funding for schools, you know, uh, funding for police and fire protection, funding for basic services. And so this, uh, this connected very effectively in that particular election. Now, Ed Rendell would serve as Pennsylvania governor and Philadelphia mayor, but he started off uh, challenging an incumbent uh, for the district attorney race. Uh, can you talk about uh, his experiences there? Uh, you say that the, the Democratic City Committee, that their strategy for dealing with Rendell was to ignore him. Yeah, something very interesting happened uh, in 1977. Um, Ed Rendell was uh, much skinnier then, if you can see the... Uh, a picture there, um, but uh, he worked in the DA's office when Arlen Specter was district attorney. Uh, Specter was upset by a Democratic candidate, Emmett Fitzpatrick, during a period in which uh, Frank Rizzo really was coming to dominate the Philadelphia scene and to take control of the Democratic Party in Philadelphia. Um, and so in the 1977 district attorney's race, um, the party endorsed Fitzpatrick. Um, none of the ward leaders, uh, with I think one or two exceptions, cared about Ed Rendell, who had no political background. Again, he had worked for the district attorney's office, but he was a newcomer. Um, the opportunity for Rendell uh, really consisted of uh, two parts. One was that um, nearly everyone was sure that Emma Fitzpatrick would win. And then secondly, interestingly, almost everybody disliked at Fitzpatrick for various reasons. He had kind of a checkered past. Uh, he had been a defense uh, attorney, um, and uh, in some cases he had a, a way of presenting himself that turned people off. Um, more importantly, um, he had refused to testify in a grand jury proceeding in which a mob leader um, had been accused of taking a payoff, and Fitzpatrick's uh, testimony was appeared to be needed, um, and his refusal to uh, uh, participate raised some questions about him. But what really took the cake was uh, news coverage of a trip that Fitzpatrick made to a district attorney conference in Canada. 
at which he uh, invoiced the city for reimbursement for what he described as a dinner with other prosecutors at what he called a restaurant called Aquascutum. And he represented this in his invoicing as a seafood restaurant. But after a little investigation, uh, the press found out that it was really a men's clothing store. And the uh, invoice was for a safari suit that Fitzpatrick bought for himself. And I think this is a time when uh, Nehru jackets were being worn by some people. I'm not sure what a safari suit is. I think it has these flaps over the uh, uh, chest and maybe these things on the shoulders. But clearly this uh, was far from a legitimate expense. And this uh, incident um, generated even more unfavorable publicity. So Rendell had an interesting strategy as he described it. Um, All he had to do was uh, convince people that he was on the ballot. He was an alternative to Fitzpatrick. And so, uh, again, where he had an opportunity to go to ward meetings and present himself, he would do that. Most of the ward leaders would not let him in. Um, And to a large extent, he spent time um, at train stations, uh, commuter train stations, at bus stops, um, in the evening, he would visit, you know, diners and bars. Uh, he was not and is not a drinker, um, but he's someone who can strike up a conversation with anyone. That's the way he's always been. Um, and he's an avid sports fan. Uh, so coming into a neighborhood tap room and striking up a conversation with somebody about the Phillies was something he was capable of doing. Um, and uh, the next day, uh, do, uh, some of that person would say, hey, there's this guy running for D.A. who showed up at the bar last night. And we had this this discussion. You know, he would do this day, morning and evening, uh, week in, week out, uh, roughly between January and the mid-May election just to uh, uh, make those communications happen. Um, So that was a big plus. In addition, um, he looked for sort of cracks in the Democratic Party infrastructure. Um, After committee people are elected, and now they're elected every four years, about two weeks later, the committee people in a particular ward get together and elect a ward leader. Um, In Philadelphia, there are um, 66 wards, um, and uh, some of them are, some of the ward boundaries are uh, consistent with neighborhood boundaries, others are not. But in any case, the elected committee person, people, and there may be a dozen of them, there may be four dozen of them, uh, get together and elect uh, one of their number to be the ward leader. And sometimes those elections are contentious, and sometimes uh, there is uh, opposition uh, and division among the committee people. So Rendell looked for those ward leader elections in which uh, the losing candidate had supported a lot of the committee people. And he went to the committee people who had supported the loser and invited them to support his campaign uh, because the winner in the ward election was going to support Fitzpatrick. And uh, those uh, individuals who had supported the losing candidate at the ward level might feel that uh, there was an opportunity to shake things up in a party organization that they felt didn't represent their interests perfectly. So as Rendell put it, uh, in some uh, polling places, there might be committee people would, who would be handing out a sample ballot that was called in, uh, the official Democratic 
ballot. Um, and other people at other polling places might be handing out a ballot, a flyer uh, that at the top of the ballot said um, the new Democratic Party ballot. And that really resonated with voters. And this election took place um, a year after the defeat of a recall effort to recall Frank Rizzo from office. Um, recall elections were call, were provided for in the Philadelphia City Charter, um, and uh, the uh, provision called for petitions to be circulated and signed by a certain number of voters, many voters um, in the city, in order to have a referendum question placed on the ballot, which in this case would be the question of uh, should Frank Rizzo um, be recalled from office as mayor of Philadelphia? And at this time, uh, there was a lot of uh, opposition to Rizzo, lots of support for him as well, but there was really a groundswell of uh, opposition to him. Uh, This case, needless to say, went into litigation after the uh, supporters of the referendum acquired the appropriate number of signatures. And at the Pennsylvania Supreme Court level, um, the referendum was rejected as unconstitutional, even though it had been called for in the city charter. And as I understand it, the Supreme Court's decision was based on a feeling that the state constitution didn't allow it. Um, I think some people would feel that would was debatable. But the outcome of that was you had a couple of hundred thousand people who had signed their names and addresses onto these recall petitions. And the assumption was these were people that a year later might be interested in voting for the district attorney candidate who opposed Rizzo's choice for DA, Emmett Fitzpatrick. So the combination of the uh, sort of uh, um, unhappiness with the recall referendum um, and the feeling, the negative feelings about Fitzpatrick combined with uh, Ed Rendell's energetic um, uh, traveling across the city to introduce himself to voters really was enough to produce a win. And it was not a close race. Um, uh, the sort of feeling among the um, political experts, and this was published uh, by the uh, uh, columnists and uh, news reporters who were covering politics in the major newspapers, the feeling was this is a controlled election. Um, Rendell is not going to win. The party organization is going to do what it usually does so well, turn out the voters for the party-endorsed candidate Fitzpatrick. Well, that didn't happen. Rendell won and won big in almost every area of the city. So it's a fascinating, uh, it's a fascinating thing. Um, needless to say, endorse, uh, incumbent candidates who are not well regarded frequently win re-election. And that's a real shame that that happens. But that does happen, too. And in this instance, there was just the right combination of factors that made it possible for Rendell to win. Um, and in terms of the uh, three elements that I described earlier, you know, he identified himself as the alternative to Fitzpatrick, and that was all that mattered. 
to uh, many people. Um, but I think what also mattered was uh, the fact that he had a reputation as a prosecutor. He'd been head of the DA's homicide unit at a time when people were increasingly concerned about crime in Philadelphia. And that, I think, was uh, felt to be a plus uh, by many of them. And the third issue, the Democratic Party, um, in this situation, uh, the party members, like the press and others, just assumed Fitzpatrick would win. So there was not a big party effort to go after Rendell and to go negative on Rendell. People uh, largely felt, um, as the new writers, news writers felt, that uh, Fitzpatrick would be a shoe-in and that Rendell was not going to be a problem. Well, what a surprise. Well, voter turnout is always something that, that is a major concern. And in your book, you break down voters into three categories. And you, you've used the term a few times already, uh, controlled voters. And you also talk about inspired voters and undecided voters. Can you break each of those down? Sure. And I think uh, people who uh, come to the polls on Election Day will uh, recognize this. Um, there are people who have strong feelings about the Democratic Party organization or in other cities like Altoona, where uh, I've spent a lot of time and have been told that uh, everybody's a Republican so that the uh, Republicans don't have Democrats to fight and they fight each other. Um, but regardless of the party, there are some people um, that are uh, lifelong members of the party and they just go to the polls and vote for the party just because they feel this allegiance to the party and to some extent don't feel the need, particularly with regard to the down-ballot races, uh, to consider alternatives. They just feel that the party organization uh, should be supported consistently. So this, those are the uh, what I term the controlled voters. There's another category of voters uh, that are very enthusiastic uh, about a candidate or about a particular uh, issue that that candidate represents. Think about uh, Donald Trump, for example. Um, many voters who uh, supported uh, Donald Trump um, didn't care whether he ran as a Democrat or Republican. They liked Donald Trump. They were enthusiastic about him. Something similar was true of Bernie Sanders. The fact that he identified himself as a democratic socialist really didn't make a difference to his most enthusiastic supporters. Um, they liked Bernie Sanders. You know, they liked the way he talked. Um, they liked what he represented to them. So they were inspired by sort of these charismatic candidates. And that's frequently a uh, um, a factor in elections. Not in a lot of them. Not everybody is charismatic. But uh, there's another group of voters uh, uh, that I've termed inspired um, who want to vote for a candidate based on a particular issue. If you think of the NRA and the Second Amendment supporters um, and the gun rights activists, um, they're going to support the candidate who is identified with those issues, even though they may not know anything about that candidate. Um, that's also true of candidates, of uh, voters who may be concerned about environmental issues. Um, if they are aware that a particular candidate um, is uh, supporting a green economy agenda, um, that's going to be, that's going to make them enthusiastic. They may not know anything else about that candidate, um, but they'll go for that, uh, that candidate. And then there's a third uh, group um, 
that uh, and nobody knows how many uh, uh, voters this consists of who uh, wake up uh, on a Tuesday morning and realize, oh, this is election day. Um, you know, I'll go vote. And they have no clue as to, you know, what the election is for, who's running, who the candidates are. Maybe they take the newspaper with them and their recommendations there on the editorial page. Maybe there's a leaflet in their door and they take that to the polling place. Maybe somebody um, uh, hands them some information as they enter the polling place. Or maybe they just walk into the uh, polling booths and look at what's there and start voting for whatever reason. So um, these are voters that can be influenced by um, an organization, whether it be a party organization or um, a person who's outside the polling place um, handing out uh, some information saying, you know, this is the NRA endorsed candidate. Um, so uh, that uh, that can make a difference, but it's just happenstance with uh, regard um, to this third category of voters. Um, I think in order of influence, um, the controlled voters and the inspired voters are really contending for the majority of uh, votes, and where there's no inspiration, either in terms of a charismatic candidate or a cause, uh, an identification with the issue of the controlled vote um, is likely in many instances to win out. Uh, what was the relationship of African Americans to the Democratic Party, uh, the city Democratic Party establishment in the 1960s and 70s? Well, it's really fascinating. Um, uh, during uh, the uh, 50s and 60s and 70s, um, there was an influx of uh, uh, black uh, residents in uh, uh, cities like Philadelphia, um, a migration of many uh, blacks from, uh, in many cases, from southern cities to uh, uh, cities like Philadelphia, where there was still a significant industrial base. There were still jobs to be had in the manufacturing sector. And so the black population of Philadelphia, like that of Philadelphia, of uh, Pittsburgh and other cities, grew significantly. And as the years went on, uh, there was really a mismatch between uh, the population of certain neighborhood areas and the elected representatives in those areas. You know, redistricting the adjustment of boundaries, of district boundaries at the uh, state legislative and congressional level takes place every 10 years after the census. And so boundaries are readjusted to uh, try to, uh, uh, to give um, voters um, uh, an equal representation in terms of number of voters within a particular district. As it turned out uh, during the 60s and 70s and afterwards, um, a number of uh, legislative districts at the state level in the state house um, had substantial black populations, in some cases majority black populations, and were represented by uh, white elected officials. In many cases, white elected officials who were older people who'd been there in office for some time. And so um, beginning really in 1970, with the election of Hardy Williams, uh, the father of state senator Anthony Hardy Williams. The election of Hardy Williams as a state representative in 1970 um, against an incumbent candidate who had been endorsed by the party um, triggered, it was really the catalyst 
for a whole series of elections that were based on the idea of better representation of black communities, which now uh, uh, constituted a majority or a substantial portion of the electorate in certain legislative districts. And it wasn't only about electing more black people to office. Again, in many of these districts, the uh, incumbents were older people. I'm an older person myself. There's nothing wrong with that. Um, But these were people that had been sitting in place for some time. And so if some voters felt that uh, uh, there might be an opportunity for a change, um, uh, that no doubt uh, was a factor. In Philadelphia and elsewhere, um, many voters do not vote along racial lines, and many black voters will vote for white candidates um, when there's a black candidate in the same election. So I think something comparable was happening here. Clearly, there was a black power movement um, that was very ambitious, that brought out a lot of new registered voters who happened to be black and uh, produced um, a significant number of new elected officials, starting with state representatives. But I think there was also a feeling that uh, a new breed and some new blood uh, is going to help. And in these elections, um, some of the insurgent candidates who won uh, were half the age of the incumbents. These are young men and women who were in their 20s and in some cases early 30s who were replacing people who were in their late 60s and in their in 70s. So it was a very exciting time and um, it produced more registered voters and a higher level of participation, um, which is always good. Now you're right about uh, Shaka Fatah and Curtis Jones and how they worked together to conceive a strategy uh, to, to win election. Uh, what, what, was, what was their strategy? Well, it was really fascinating. Uh, Shaka Fatah and Curtis Jones uh, were young men who both got acquainted through the house of Yomoja, which was a West Philadelphia boys town uh, type resource, a uh, uh, place for young men um, who had no other options and who were either involved in street gangs or were in danger of getting involved in uh, street gangs, a place for them to live in a supervised, safe environment and uh, to uh, be connected with resources for education uh, and growth. And so these two young men were very interested in um, improving the political system at a time when, as I said, Hardy Williams and other activists were getting more black people involved. And these two, who were in their early 20s at the time, uh, decided they wanted to run for office. And they didn't want to compete for against each other. Um, so they chose the office of city commissioner. And in Philadelphia, the city commissioners are three people um, who supervise elections. Um, uh, and voters in the primary election can vote for two candidates. So Curtis Jones and Shaka Fatah decided they would both file for city commissioner. That way they could both run in the same election, um, but it wouldn't be a zero-sum situation where one would win at the expense of the other. Um, And there were quite a few city commissioner candidates, a dozen of them, I think, in that election. Um, So there was a lot going on. At that time, in that year, there was also an election for mayor, um, which uh, meant that there would be a higher turnout than uh, would ordinarily be the case. Um, 
One of the candidates was Charles Bowser, a black uh, uh, community and civic leader who had been head of the uh, Philadelphia Urban Coalition. He had been a deputy mayor under Mayor James Tate. He was a highly respected uh, civic and political leader. He was running for mayor in that election. And so uh, Fatah and Jones did a clever thing. They would call Bowser's campaign uh, every day and say, you know, we're reporters for the Temple University student newspaper. Could we get uh, the candidate's schedule for the day? And so they got the schedule of where the candidate would be and when, and they would show up early before Bowser and present themselves as candidate for city commissioners. And they were guys who really knew how to talk it up, and they attracted attention. Uh, and it was kind of a novelty. Here are these two kids, you know, who are getting involved in politics, and they weren't just kids. They really knew their stuff. These were young men who had already held uh, candidate forums for candidates who had held voter registration drives. So they knew what they were talking about, and it was kind of a quirky thing, too. It was kind of a cool thing uh, that they were up for office and they were daring to get their names on the ballot. Um, so they did this very successfully, and you know, after uh, Charles Bowser would show up for uh, the, his scheduled appearance, um, those two, Fatah Jones, uh, would jump on into the next event and introduce themselves there. That was very effective, and it really got them known um, across the city. They didn't win, uh, but Chaka Fatah came close. He came in uh, fourth out of a candidate of uh, more than a dozen people. And, of course, he went on to become a state representative and a state senator and then a member of Congress. And I really want to mention something about Chaka Fatah. Um, he was a well-regarded state representative and state senator. He was an innovative member of Congress. He introduced new legislation uh, to support education and job training and workforce development. As some of you know, um, he also got into trouble. He was the subject of a federal investigation. He was convicted um, and served time. Um, so clearly something went wrong. And I think uh, when people uh, look at a career like that, they think, well, this just shows it's all worthless. You know, uh, why should I participate? These people will get elected and you get excited about them, um, but they all turn out to be the same. I really would encourage people who have that view to sort of look at the record of individuals like Chaka Fatah, the value that he produced for Philadelphia and for other cities where education and the public school system and public housing and jobs and uh, job readiness, getting people ready for good jobs in uh, the new economy are important issues. Look at the contributions he made. They're very, very significant. So what about the fact that um, uh, things went bad later? If more voters were involved, if more voters were engaged, um, if more voters were knowledgeable about the candidates, um, then I think uh, there would be more opportunities to say to candidates, um, thank you very much for your service. It's time for somebody new. And the problems like uh, this one 
could be nipped in the bud and that voters could make intelligent decisions about changes where they might be needed. And the sort of second related issue is term limits. I think everybody's aware of politicians um, who have been in the House and Senate, either in Harrisburg or Washington, forever. And some of them, for some of them, it's not really a good thing. Um, in polls that have been taken um, of the population in general, um, there's a lot of support for term limits. So why aren't term limits in place uh, at the state and federal level? Well, the answer might be that people in office that would like to stay in office um, don't like the idea that they'd have to leave after, say, a couple of terms. So if there were a more engaged electorate, um, more people participating in elections um, who would take on an issue like this, I think you start to see um, elected officials change their mind about term limits and uh, maybe get religion about this. And we'd have term limits in place. So I think that's really, uh, regardless of how you feel um, about politics and politicians, one way to cure uh, corruption in politics um, is by establishing term limits for everybody so that they don't have an opportunity to uh, extend their careers indefinitely and to take advantage of the political benefits associated with that. Now, you also write about uh, judicial elections, and one in particular that was unusual where you had 10 open judicial seats and a group of candidates who became known as the KC5. Who were they? Well, it was an interesting situation uh, that took place during the mid-1980s in which uh, 10 judges in Common Pleas Court were suspended for having taken money from the Roofers Union. And if you just take a deep breath and think of that, you know, 10 people who took an oath to serve on the bench, um, taking money from a union, you know, what was going on there? What does that say about the system? What was encouraging um, about that situation was that Governor Casey at the time, really, to me, did the right thing. He appointed a panel to uh, recommend to him 10 candidates uh, to fill those vacant seats and uh, supported those candidates in uh, the elections that year to uh, fill those seats and really address a very significant backlog of cases that had built up in common police court. Um, and so 10 candidates were uh, recommended by this advisory panel, and the governor endorsed them. You don't hear about that happening these days. Um, and I think that's something that uh, we should uh, want future governors to think about doing. Um, what happened in this particular time was that the governor uh, supported the panel recommendations without consulting Democratic City Committee, which in the 1980s, you know, was a formidable force and wanted to have a say in who the next judges would be to uh, fill these 10 vacant seats. As it happened, five of the candidates had uh, some affiliations with the party. You know, in some cases, a uh, young uh, lawyer who would be interested in running for judge in the future will uh, help out uh, the party organization. There's nothing wrong with that. They'll help out a candidate with filing nominating petitions. Um, they'll help the party with a particular uh, uh, litigation that's going on. So there's nothing bad about that. And it's a way for an ambitious, 
uh, young attorney uh, to get recognized by the party and maybe endorsed by the party in a future election. That's one sort of pathway to success, to be available on a pro bono basis um, to assist the party. Um, and so five of these nominees of Governor Casey's had some kind of affiliation with the Democratic Party or, uh, in two cases, the Republican Party organization. And those five candidates were endorsed by the party organizations and uh, were supported uh, by those organizations for uh, the upcoming primary election. Five of them were not. And they included people like uh, Legrome Davis, who uh, uh, was head of the rape unit in the district attorney's office and would have been prohibited from participating in political activity. So there was no connection uh, between Legrome Davis, a prosecutor, and the Democratic City Committee. Another uh, candidate was uh, Darnell Jones, who worked for the Public Defender's Office, which is the organization in Philadelphia that provides free legal representation for individuals that can't afford legal counsel. Again, public defenders can't get involved in politics. They can't create ties with a party organization. Um, rather than recognizing this and looking at the qualifications of people like Darnell Jones and Legrome Davis, uh, the party organization refused to endorse these five individuals um, and instead uh, endorsed other candidates in the upcoming primary election. Um, so this was kind of devastating for uh, one of them, like uh, Darnell Jones, who was delighted uh, to have been uh, uh, one of the governor's picks, but had to resign as a public defender because he could not be a candidate um, in an upcoming election. So he resigned, but then later found that the party wasn't going to support him. So he was really left up in the air, left in limbo, um, and very concerned that he was out of a job and was not going to be elected. Fortunately, um, these candidates all uh, received support from the media. The governor uh, got allied with some business leaders who were concerned about um, integrity in the judicial system. Um, Darnell Jones was uh, a member of the congregation um, of Zion Baptist Church, um, the pastor of which was Reverend Leon Sullivan, a nationally, internationally known figure at the time, and uh, uh, Zion Baptist Church had thousands of congregants um, who were aware that uh, Downell Jones was a member. Obviously, the church couldn't promote him as a candidate, but they could recognize him as an individual who uh, was participating in the upcoming election. So clearly, that combination of factors made a difference, and fortunately, the KC5, as, it became, uh, as they became known, um, all won uh, the uh, office of common pleas judge. Uh, Darnell Jones is now a respected judge in the federal court system. Uh, Legrome Davis also uh, went on from common pleas, common pleas court to the U.S. District Court. He retired recently, again, a respected member of the judiciary. So I think this experience um, really uh, sort of should um, uh, influence people to think about how we're choosing judges at the local level. And unfortunately, um, uh, party endorsements still matter a great deal in Philadelphia, as they do in other cities. 
And so finding a way either through the Bar Association or through business leadership to support candidates who may or may not be endorsed by the party organization um, to win office, I think is really important. Clearly, some endorsed candidates are outstanding prospects for the judiciary. Some of them may not be. And a complicating factor in Philadelphia, it may be this way elsewhere, is that uh, ballot positions are chosen by a drawing of ballot numbers. And uh, in many instances, there are over a dozen candidates um, possibly running for half a dozen uh, positions on the judiciary. And so those candidates appear on the ballot in a number of columns. Each column might have four or five, six uh, names in them, and there might be three or four or five candidates. And so uh, before the uh, ballots are drawn up, um, for common pleas court, and this is still happening. Uh, the ballot numbers um, are put into a coffee can. This is the truth. This is not a joke. Um, and the candidates or their representatives uh, choose uh, numbers from the coffee can uh, without looking, and the number that they pick determines their position on the ballot. And so if you can picture this, um, ballot for common police court, um, several columns of candidates. You don't know anything about any of the candidates. And the first name that you see is the top, is at the top of the left-hand column. You know, many voters are going to be inclined to vote for that person. If a candidate happens to be in the fourth column to the right and is second to the last or last in that column, chances are reasonably good that a lot of voters aren't going to vote for that candidate. And in an election where, you know, a number, a large number of voters can't tell one judge for, from another um, and have no guidance about, you know, who was deemed qualified by the Fire Bar Association, who was deemed not qualified, um, they may just go down that first column and click off the names of uh, the first candidates that appear there. And that may or may not be a good thing. There have been some uh, poor candidates, um, poorly qualified candidates, who were not recommended by the Bar Association, uh, who have been winners because they appeared in that uh, first column. So again, um, uh, there are always problems with a, a nominating panel and with a governor-supported slate of candidates. Um, but couldn't we do better than this? Um, I hope uh, the chapter in my book that describes the KC5 situation will encourage more people wherever they live to uh, think about how the judiciary is selected and uh, you know, something going on, is going on that's uh, comparable to what has happened here. Um, there may be uh, value in looking into opportunities for change. We are out of time. We've been speaking with John Cromer. He is the author of Philadelphia Battlefields, Disruptive Campaigns and Upset Elections in a Changing City. Thank you for joining me. Great. Thanks very much. Glad to be here. You've been listening to a podcast of PA Books, a production of PCN, the Pennsylvania Cable Network. Full episodes of PA Books, as well as other PCN programs, are available to stream with the PCN app. Visit PCNTV.com or the App Store for details.